Good morning, Fondren Church. I'm Daniel Wagner. I'm the college and young adults pastor, and it's an honor for me to be here with you today. Uh, look, Robert is probably wrapping up some jet setting right now. This is the glamorous life of a senior pastor. Robert did a wedding in California in Joshua Tree and then flew from there to do a wedding in New Orleans, red-eyed. And uh, here I am preaching. So he's enjoying being stuck in New Orleans. Apparently he tried to get a rental car last night and there weren't any rental cars. So when, uh, you know, the cat's a pl- when the cat is away, the mice will play. And that's what's happening today. Thanks for being here. We're in this series, like you saw in this hype video. Thank you, Daniel Hicks, for making me feel cool when I walk up here. We're in the life of Joseph. And Joseph, obviously a character in Genesis. The last part of Genesis is Joseph's portion. And it's actually the longest that Genesis spends on any one character. A lot to learn from this life of Joseph. And Genesis is an origin story. If you wonder why so much time is spent on him, it's because the next book in the Bible picks right up with the Hebrews being in Egypt in slavery. And this kind of says, hey, this is how you got here and what comes next. And just like us, like this video said, he's in the midst of a lot of personal crisis. You know, I really ascribe to the thought that people are either on their way out of a tragedy, they're in the middle of a tragedy, or they're on the way to a tragedy. It's just the nature of human life. It's the nature of sin and the world, and it's the nature of our personal brokenness and the brokenness of the people around us, that there's always something going on. And we can learn today from this chapter 39 in Genesis. So if you're a paper Bible person, that's you. We took them out of the pews in front of you if you're accustomed to that. This is your first time back because you know we don't want you to get the Rona. We are looking in Genesis 39 today. This is a story some of you are familiar with. If you've been around church for a little while or if you've started uh, read through the Bible in a year plan and gotten to the end of Genesis, this is Joseph in Potiphar's house. And uh, I'm acutely aware of the fact that we have kids in the room. So here's what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to try to be like a PG-13 movie that awkwardly gets put on television and they take the profanity and the explicit parts out of it. So I want to be crystal clear for everyone over the age of 12 today. I'll be using a modest amount of church-appropriate innuendo, and I hope that you stick with me. If you need any clarification later, you can ask your parents first, and then after that, feel free to ask me, daniel.wagner at fondernchurch.com. But here's what we're looking at today. We're looking at this concept of integrity, integrity, and I want to give you two definitions, then I want to qualify what we'll talk about for the next, not good at math, 27 minutes integrity. Here are two definitions. I think this is Oxford Dictionary. You know, whenever I talk about something, I want to define it so we know where we're headed together. Two really good working definitions here. I think one's better than the other, and I'll spend the balance of our time trying to show you why. The quality of being honest and having strong moral principles, moral uprightness, integrity. And the second, the one I prefer, the state of being whole and undivided. The state of being whole and undivided. Now, here's the thing about people. We are messed up. We're fallen, we're broken, we're sinful. Whatever you would choose to use to describe the fact that sometimes you just don't do what you want to do. Sometimes you have great intention and you don't follow through on that. I'm telling you, I am the chief of all sinners in that area. I'm going to make some of you really happy today. Fulfill your white girl dreams. On the Enneagram, I'm a three which means uh, my besetting sin, the thing that I go to, is deceit. Ever since I was a little kid, I would just 
stuff things away, try to avoid pain and conflict. That's always been me, and that's something that God has had to refine out of me. So the irony of me standing up here telling you guys to live a life of integrity is not lost on me. I'm not perfect, but I'll tell you, I am trying hard to be committed to that second thing in the way of Jesus, to be whole and undivided for what I say to be what I do and what I think to be what I do and what I feel to be what I do, all submitted under the lordship of Jesus. And it's tough because you think, man, a life of integrity where I do what I want to do all the time, where I do what God wants me to do all the time, where my best intentions are actually my best actions, where I'm perfect, essentially. That's a lot of work. But I'm here to tell you that I'm not giving you a talk on perfection. You know, a lot of us know uh, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live for the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. And we stop there, but 2.21 is so powerful. It essentially says that if righteousness could be kept, if righteousness could be earned by keeping the law, then Christ died for nothing. So I'm telling you, in the middle of this talk, this is about grace. This is an acknowledgement that most of us in the room have already messed up in ways that we wish we could take back. But the beauty of who God is is that he works those things to make us better. A pastor that I love says that God takes our mess and he makes it our message. So if that's you today, and I know that that's me today, let's look at what we can learn in this life of Joseph in regards to making our mess our message and being less messy moving forward as we seek to be holy like Jesus is holy. But perfectionism can feel like this weight. I have to be perfect. I have to do perfect. Everything I do has to be on 100 all the time. I just want to dispel that with a quote from Brene Brown. Some of you guys are familiar with her work. She's kind of become, um, I don't know, the de facto millennial pop psychologist. And she wrote this book, The Gifts of Imperfection, which I looked up this week. Apparently has a 10th anniversary edition coming out. That's not a plug for that. I don't get any royalties from this. But this is what she says about perfectionism. Perfectionism is not the same thing as striving to be your best. Let me read that again. Perfectionism is not the same thing as striving to be your best. Perfectionism is the belief that if we live perfect, look perfect, and act perfect, we can minimize or avoid the pain of blame, judgment, and shame. It's a shield. It's a 20-ton shield that we lug around thinking that it will protect us when, in fact, it's the thing that really, that's really preventing us from flight. And you felt that just like me, this crushing blow to be perfect, especially as you follow Jesus. God, I'm going to fail you. I'm going to be sinful. I'm going to mess up. So why should I even try? And I want to spend the balance of our time looking at Genesis 39, looking at Joseph and seeing three ways that he walked in integrity that we can learn from. The first is integrity in his position. The second, which you don't have to put up, thank you, Gina, is integrity in his order. And then the third in his boundaries. And the third is integrity in his faith. So we're looking at integrity, his position, in his boundaries, and in his faith. Now that I've told you what I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you something. So if you're in Genesis Let's turn there together, put it on the screen. In Genesis 39, we're reading 1 through 6. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian who had, brought him, who had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. Let's keep that up for a second. Sorry, Gina, I'm dancing with you up here. 
Let's uh, talk about this. Joseph is in Egypt, like we looked at last week. If you're unfamiliar with the story, you weren't here last week. He was sold into slavery by his brothers because essentially he was proud, didn't know when to keep his mouth shut, and his brothers were sick of him, a position that I can thoroughly identify with. He was sold to this guy, Potiphar, who's a main player in this chapter, who is the captain of the guard. Now, captain of the guard kind of sounds like head of security for Pharaoh, which would be an important position nonetheless. But this captain of the guard, it's also used in 2 Kings when it describes the Babylonian uh, military officer who destroyed Jerusalem. So this is a powerful position. This is more like head of the army. So not only is Joseph sold into slavery, but he's sold into this guy who's, who's kind of the who's who of Egypt at this time. Very powerful, very influential. So let's go to the next section. Thank you. The Lord was with Joseph, and when he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now, uh, that was written in Hebrew. It's translated into English. There are a lot of he's going on there. Uh, Apparently, the Hebrews were not great with personal pronouns. But Joseph goes and works for this guy in slavery, Potiphar. And it says that he attended him, which sounds like he was maybe his secretary or like his maid in his house. But this attended is the same word that's used later in Deuteronomy for the relationship between Joshua and Moses. So it's a position of power, a position of trust, a position of influence. So we see this Joseph that's sold by his brothers in a foreign land, probably had to learn a new language. Everything about his life changed from being essentially his father's favorite son to now living in a foreign land, away from everything he's ever known, as a slave, not in charge of his own life. But God used the integrity of Joseph to give him success. So in Joseph's integrity, we see this, success even in an undesired arena. And I think that that's important because often we want success in things that we want. We want to be in a place, so we want to be successful there. But Joseph had this different metric, this deeper metric that integrity in his position gave him. That he wanted to be successful at everything that he did even though he didn't want to be there. And that is not the way that I naturally drift. When I'm in a place that I don't want to be, when my situation is different than I wish it was, when things haven't turned out the way that I wish they did, and now I'm stuck in them, I just want to throw my hands in the air and give up. I don't want to be a hard worker. I don't want to be committed to the place that God's put me. But we see that even in an undesired arena, that the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Success is what marks this life of Joseph. Now, I'm not saying that if you live a life with integrity, you'll be guaranteed success. I wish it was that easy, guys. But I'll tell you, if you live a life without integrity, you probably won't have success. 
Proverb after proverb talks about the benefit of the prudent, the benefit of the wise, and the ruin of the sluggard. So in our work, in your family, in your parenting or your roommating, whatever you're in, man, God will give you success if you shoot for it and if you try for it. I'm not saying your life's going to be perfect. I'm not going to say that your 401k is going to triple every quarter. But I am telling you that if you don't try, your life's probably not going to be that great. Joseph could have thrown his hands up and said, all right, I'm a slave. I hate this. I'm out. But he was put in a place by God, and he saw his faithful response as an opportunity for him to be successful, but more importantly, for him to make God known. In the integrity in his position, he made God known. By working with integrity, Potiphar in his house saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So this is what we see in the life of Joseph, that he could have put his hands up, said, I'm a slave, I hate being here, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. But instead he committed himself to work hard to honor the Lord. And in that, this culture, this Egyptian culture, which was a different place, probably had no knowledge before Joseph entered that house of the God of his forefathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There was no great footprint of Jews at this point. So these people probably had no idea who God was. And because of the way that Joseph worked hard, he demonstrated God to the people he was around. Desperately lost people, people who didn't know him, to the point where they saw that this guy cared so much, that he was such a hard worker, that he was so committed to the things that he was involved in, that he made his life about walking in integrity and trying to succeed and make the people that he worked for successful then it made a difference. And I just want to say this, you know, so often the church does a great job in resourcing people with what to do with their money and how to raise their kids, but we do a bad job often in helping people work and work well. Our theology of work can be off sometimes. But God created work before the fall. People were created to work. We were created to give ourselves to other things, to creative enterprises, to investing in people. God created work. And there's a quote that's attributed to Martin Luther that I love, and someone asked him, how do I be a Christian worker? And he said, you be a Christian worker, you can be a Christian worker, not by putting tiny little crosses on the underside of buns or the underside of shoes if you're a baker or a shoemaker, but by making the best product you can at a fair price. And that's the beauty of what God's given us. He's given us all things that are attainable, all things that are easy for us to access. He's placed you where he's placed you. He's put you in the family he's put you in. He's put you in the neighborhood he's put you in. He's put you in the job that he's put you in. And when you live your life in a way where you show that you care, where you live with a wholeness, where you're committed to the things that you're committed to, where what you say is what you do, you set yourself apart, open up yourself for the opportunity for success. And at the very least, you show that you're different and you proclaim Jesus to a lost world. Because we know this, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. The second is that he had integrity in his boundaries. Integrity in his boundaries. And this is where we'll live for a little bit longer. This is uh, about a physically intimate boundary that Joseph had. But let's all use our imagination together to think about other boundaries that you may not uphold in your life. Maybe there's some loose room at work where you can make some money disappear. Maybe there's an opportunity for you to cozy up with a neighbor. Maybe you've connected with an old fling 
on Facebook. Maybe you have too much freedom on your phone. Whatever it is, you probably have an opportunity to choose the opposite of integrity. But we see this in a physical relationship with Joseph, and because that's what the passage says, that's where we're going to live here. I want to honor the text, but I also want to make sure that we're aware that there are other ways to fall, uh, that there's not just one area of integrity. So pick it up in verse 6. Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Don't you love the Bible? That's essentially, you know, Moses writing down, this guy was cute. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Now, again, Hebrew translated into English. Uh, This is much stronger than lie with me. Lie with me feels very days of our lives as the world turns, which the story feels like, but uh, lie with me is like, you, me, let's do this thing now. It was much more forceful in Hebrew. So she said, lie with me. And he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this wickedness and sin against God? And she spoke to Joseph day after day He would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men in the house were there, she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. So we see Joseph with a lot of power, a lot of influence. He's essentially the chief operating officer of the enterprise of the head of the Egyptian army. This dude's got a lot of ability, a lot of talent, a lot of gifting. And I don't even have to put things on the screen. I don't even have to tell you guys stories about the way that people don't move in integrity when they have power. People of power think that because they have power, they can assert their power over others. Whether it's a TV executive with a secret button under his desk, or a nonprofit leader who's been tucking money away on the side. You just open up the newspaper. If you're a newspaper person, turn on the TV, open Twitter, and you'll see some level of moral failure from someone who thought, no one's watching, so I can do whatever I want. But we see in Joseph a great encouragement. One who is so committed to walking in integrity and his boundaries that he ran out the house. He could not get out of there fast enough. I mean, this dude probably, depending on what cloak means, there's a chance that he ran out of there without any clothes on because he wanted to get out of there as fast as he could because he wanted to walk in integrity. He was intentional about keeping his faith and his faithfulness to the Lord. Now, misplaced desire is a great definition for lust. Let's put this on the screen. I came across this this week. Lust is a desire that's out of place. And that's what we see here in Potiphar's wife. She wanted Joseph. She wanted to be with him. She felt like she could be with him because he was cute and because there was opportunity. She saw something that she wanted and she went after it. It was a desire that's out of place. Now, again, this is not just in the physical arena. Maybe it's a desire for power. Maybe it's a desire for money. 
Maybe it's a desire to force your will onto other people. But lust, a desire that's out of place. Now, let's think about our society, the way that we're over-sexualized, the tendency that we might feel to go towards situations and things of lust. Picture with me this, okay? When college boys move into a dorm room in this land that's far away, they go, once their parents leave, and pull out these secret posters, and they put these posters up of food. (laughs) It's a big poster of a cheeseburger, and they put it on their wall. And then when other people's parents leave, they run from room to room to find other pictures of food. And imagine in the same place that people will pay good money to watch someone slowly unwrap a cheeseburger. Or that they'll get online to watch someone eat a whole pizza. And then imagine that you find out that this land uh, isn't starving like you thought they would be if they worshipped food so much. But as a matter of fact, this land has an overeating problem and an abundance of food, food waste. You would think this is a strange place, right? But let's make this about physical things. (laughs) And that's the land that we live in. Overdone, over the top, constantly on the mind. And the way that we're conditioned because of that overexposure changes us and it leads us to want to be people that are full of lust and not full of decisions that line up with integrity. Let's look at this. C.S. Lewis said it. It wouldn't be a sermon if C.S. Lewis wasn't quoted, right? To have intimacy outside of marriage, to want pleasure without a promise or commitment, is like trying to eat and taste food and then vomit it back up. There's a disorder called bulimia, And we know it rots people away. And this has the same effect. You've seen it and I've seen it. When we choose to act outside of integrity, there are consequences. Intimacy outside of marriage says this. I want your body, but I don't want you. Let's take that down. Again, grace, people, grace. But some of you might be sitting there thinking, it's suddenly gotten hot in here. (laughs) And some of you might be thinking about reconnecting with an old flame or spending some extra time with that person at work and you need someone to tell you don't do it and I'm standing here telling you don't do it. The consequences of acting outside of integrity in this physical intimacy arena have such damages for you and for the people around you. An addiction you've been feeding, a relationship on the side. Sin doesn't occur in a vacuum. It has effects on other people. Could have been easy for Joseph to say, I don't know who this is going to bother. No one will ever have to know. Nobody's in the house. But we see someone who chose to walk in integrity and his boundaries. I pray that that's you and me. When we don't choose integrity, these are some of the things that we choose. We choose fun over faithfulness, the temporary over the timeless. We choose our appetite over accountability. We pick convenience without consideration. And we choose passion without purpose. 
Remember, lust, a misplaced desire. That means that there's a desire and a desire for something good. Everything that we long for, right? Whether it's a physical relationship, whether it's money or power or influence or friendship, whatever it is, it's from God. Everything that we have on earth is a foretaste of what's coming in heaven. So I'm not saying these desires are bad, but I'm saying when these desires are misplaced, they are. Like fire in a fireplace is a good thing, but fire outside of a fireplace in your house is a bad thing. Well-intentioned, well-placed desires. Those are the things that serve us well. As we follow Jesus in a John 10.10, abundant life, knowing that Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And for many of us, he's crouching at the door. Joseph did not resist by looking within to find some inner strength to control his desire. He looked outward to find a greater desire. And that's got to be you and that's got to be me because integrity is not suppressing the desires of the heart. Let's put that next one up. But reordering the desires of the heart to put all other desires in their place. Who do you love? What are you living for? What's the North Star of your life? What is your moral compass based on? And if it's not faith and faith in Jesus, I would say that I could point you and the Bible could point you and so many in here could point you to a better North Star, a better guiding principle, a better moral compass. The last Integrity, as we round towards home, is integrity in his faith. We're going to read 10 verses here very quickly. As soon as she saw, that's Potiphar's wife, that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and I cried out. He left his garment beside me and he fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master, that's Potiphar, came home. She's thinking, I'm going to get this guy because he rejected me. And she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you've brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And there he was in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Integrity in his faith. Man, it is tough to keep your chin up when things go bad. Joseph's the guy who tried hard to do all the right things and was still wrongly accused. But God was with him in his next place. And God was with him because he spared him from what in that time was a capital offense to try to do what he was accused of with Potiphar's wife. He should have been killed, but God sustained him in the middle of a false accusation. 
And I know that that's probably your experience too. Maybe you haven't been falsely accused, but you've been let down, you've been betrayed, you've been disappointed, and you wonder where God is in it. And it would be easy again for Joseph for the second time to throw his hands up and say, I don't even care. I thought I was doing well after I got sold by my own family. And now this happened to me again. When am I going to catch a break? But instead, we see Joseph thrive, that he had integrity in his new position, that God changed the geography for him, but he was the same man, the same man. He had integrity in his faith. Now, how did he do that? How do we do that whenever things go wrong? How can we trust that what was said of Joseph could be said of us Then in the first part of this chapter, in the last part of this chapter, it said the Lord was with him and the Lord was with him. How can we be sustained in the middle of great trial and in the middle of our great suffering and in the middle of our inconveniences and our letdowns? I want to point you to a book that I have not read. You'll know why in a second. Called The Complete Book of Running. Now, Robert, look at those legs on Jim Fix, by the way, right? Hubba hubba. He wrote this book and it kind of uh, sparked the pop culture phenomenon that's still running to this day. Uh, Robert's a great runner. Nick Crawford's a great runner. Chris Mixon's a great runner. I'm built like a small car, so I'm not a great runner. But in this book, I heard someone talk about this and it was really, um, I mean, it was just a, a great way for me to focus and think about how I can apply this concept to my faith and perseverance and integrity. And here are some quotes from Jim that I I love. He says, the hardest thing about running a marathon is controlling your mind. Do you think, why did you ever start this race? What attracted you to running in the first place? Do I even like this? Those are the kind of things that I ask myself whenever I go to put my running shoes on. The brain plays tricks on you when the heat's on. You'll forget all the benefits of running and why you love it. But if you want to stick through that marathon when it's tough, you've got to memorize the reasons that you love running. And you've got to tell them to yourself over and over while you run. One last trick I try, if I forgot all those reasons, I tell myself, I know when I get to the end, I'll remember then. I know I had a good reason when I started, and I'll remember it when I get to the end. And that's a life lived in integrity. When we're faced with challenges, when we're faced with temptations, when we have opportunities to go the other way, to choose fun over faithfulness, we've got to know who we follow. We've got to know why we love the Lord. We've got to know why we do the things that we do and why we're called to the things that we're called to. So we've got to be people of the book. We've got to be people who live in community. We've got to be people who walk with the Lord consistently in our easy days so that in our hard days, the days where we're tempted to give up, we have those reasons that we love running, the reasons we love God, to tell ourselves again and again. I want to leave you with a few questions. Uh, I don't think these are particularly profound, but if you want to take a picture of them, that's great. When life gets tough, what's your why to be faithful to God? When you're tempted to give in, how can you draw upon God and his faithfulness? And what are the reasons that you love Jesus that you can tell yourself over and over again? 
It's only by having a greater love, a greater commitment, a set of guiding principles that we find in the person and work of Jesus that we can live a life of integrity through the Holy Spirit that gives us power. And I'd say this for you in the room because it got a little hot in the middle. If you're a person who identifies more with Potiphar's wife than with Joseph, here's what I would say to you. I'd show you Jesus in John 8 and the woman caught in adultery. One who said, go and sin no more. He didn't just go and say, go and sin no more, but he said, I don't condemn you. And when people were lining up to throw stones at this woman to kill her because of what she'd done, Jesus took those stones for her. And he offered that for you and for me when he died for us on the cross. Because righteousness could not be earned by law-keeping, Jesus died for something to give us a better life as we follow him in integrity. Banjo, come on up. And uh, if you guys stand with me, I'll pray us out. Lord, I'm grateful for every man and woman and child in this room. And Lord, for the places that you've put us God, you've assigned each one to a family and a workplace, Lord, a neighborhood, uh, Lord, some kind of extracurricular activity. You've put us places. You've given us position. Lord, you've given us boundaries. And Lord, for so many of us, you've given us a faith. Lord, would we walk in integrity in those things, knowing that perfectionism is a crushing weight, but that you died to take perfectionism away. Lord, instead, we follow you in integrity. Lord, you don't want our perfection, but you want our best. Would we not be tempted to throw our hands up in the air to say, oh, well, who cares? But would we see you, Lord, in your great work? And would we see obedience to you, not as a thing that we have to do, but as a thing that we get to do? Because you love us and you created us out of an abundance of your love. You've called us sons and daughters. And because of that, you call us to better things. Lord, would we choose the better thing? Would we be the same people in public that we are in secret? And Lord, would you convict hearts of sin? Would you call us away from things that can hurt us and hurt others? And Lord, would we find freedom in following you as you've given us a light burden and an easy Help us follow you, Jesus. We ask these things in your great name.